Welcome to this episode of Revolution and Ideology. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. In this episode, we are talking about the book chapter titled Killing Humanity, Anthropocentrism and Apocalypse in Contemporary Cinema. Why are we doing this? So in our um, basically year-end wrap-up, um, we talked about obviously what took place in 2021 and what we wanted to do in 2022. And one of my like one of my passion projects was to talk about the obsession we in the modern era have with the apocalypse and what that says about us. And um, well, I haven't done any of my own research yet, but Nick beat, beat me to the punch and found this amazing book chapter. And so this kind of, uh, I mean, it, it's a good place for us to start. This is not going to be the end all of our conversation regarding the apocalypse and our weird um, modern obsession with it, but we actually think this is a great place to start. So um, credit Nick for going out and finding it right away. Uh, let's get after it. You got the notes. Yeah, we talk about we talked about this for years, you and I, like individually. But yeah, this is uh, and we've threatened starting to do episodes on this <laughs> subject, and so this is our first foray sort of into the topic. Basically, we just decided let's pick some source and mm -hmm. just talk about it. And so here we are. Uh, we just <laughs> I literally went to Google Scholar and Googled like apocalypse in the media, and we just found the one that sounded cool and said let's talk about that. So here we are. Um, this, if you're curious, if you want to look this up, it's from the edited volume titled the age of spectacular death, which itself is pretty awesome. I read the intro and looked at the other chapter titles and it's pretty interesting. Um, the author of this chapter is named Dina Kapeva. She's a professor in the school of modern languages at Georgia tech. Nice. Um, like I said, the title again is killing humanity, anthropocentrism and apocalypse in contemporary cinema. It was just published in 2021. Interestingly, the author is a professor of Russian. And so she teaches Russian, but also has a lot of work in the space of cultural studies and media, and specifically death in culture and apocalypse in media. So interesting for sure. Um, so she starts out the chapter by basically saying that just as Jared and I have suspected, even though we've never done any like statistical work to prove it, that we're correct. And this is definitely a phenomenon, right? This apocalyptic media that not that this is like just now starting to happen in modern times, but it's definitely, I think, ramping up in popularity. She says, quote, the Internet Movie Database lists over 3,104 apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic movies and another 701 movies that have as their key term, the end of the world, the majority of which have been, were produced since the 1990s. So this is a relatively, you know, recent phenomena that we've seen just this huge volume of apocalyptic media, I think for sure. So that's huge. That is a, that's actually a larger number than I, even I anticipated. So mm -hmm. that, that's pretty amazing. The second thing though, I want to focus on, cause I don't think we have notes on it, but I think it should be mentioned. One of my initial um, connections that I was going to make if I, when, when I started doing this research is like this phenomenon of dissatisfied societies across time and space and mm -hmm. how apocalyptic literature um, rises over time and space. Um, our author here immediately just, just smashes that. And actually, she made a good argument, and I kind of agree regarding that, 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 I cannot, that we cannot necessarily compare the apocalyptic religious stuff of whatever thousands of years ago with this now. Um, mm -hmm. I was actually going to probably try and make some loose connections regarding just general dissatisfaction with society and oppression and people seeking a way out. Um, but that's not the argument being made here. So, and I, I think you're going to kind of see, um, if you're watching or listening, why that comparison just does not fit with this, like basically eighties, nineties, you know, aughts conversation about the apocalypse. So yeah, I did, I did want to mention that cause I, that's no, one sure. that I thing think that's that an important 
framework, right, is that the scholars in this space draw a very, very solid line between religious apocalyptic narrative and secular apocalyptic narrative, where the secular narrative, the apocalypse is not brought about by God or some deity or something spiritual, right? It's something, whatever, scientific or, you know, pragmatic, something real is the cause of the apocalypse. I don't know that I wholeheartedly agree yet, but the argument was compelling and it made sense. Like you would, of course, if you're going to research, want to limit yourself to this and not try these very broad strokes across, again, thousand millennia of different human history, different circumstances, um, especially when we talk about differences in technology and beliefs and ideologies and so on and so forth. However, there is, I am going to always, however, it I do think there is something to be said about societies of power, oppression, and exploitation and the apocalypse being used to answer questions. And then in this case, regardless of time or geography or things along those lines, not ready to make that argument myself yet, but I think I still want to kind of dig into it. Like, mm-hmm. is there a connection between the revelations and the Ragnaroks of the world and what we're experiencing today? So anyway, I, I did want For to sure. mention it before we get too heavy, but. Yep. Um, and then she gives us a paragraph that basically is like a mini literature review sort of of the scholarship in this area, which I'm just going to read because I think it's a really good summary. And it's actually going to guide us on where we're going to go in the future, exploring these specific theoretical perspectives of apocalypse in the future. So she says, quote, scholars explain the mounting attractiveness of the apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic genres in the last decade as an expression of political and social anxieties, such as environmental problems, world peace insecurity, terrorism, fear of viral pandemics, capitalist exploitation, or as an expression of inequality, race, and gender issues. Some argue that apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic narratives may help us cope with the fear of death and offset our incapacity to avoid it, and can even help the audience to make sense of the world. Others believe that longing for some conclusive catastrophe is a characteristic of modernity and speaks to a pervasive post-apocalyptic sensibility in recent American culture. So that basically is you know, like I said, a miniature literature review, a really big, you know, wide sweeping overview of the scholarship in this topic, in this uh, subject area. So, yeah, Uh, but she disagrees with a lot of these conclusions and she's done a lot of work. She has a book, I forget the title of the book right now, but where she covers death in society and cultural, you know, ritualization, et cetera, of death. And she coins this term thanatophobia. And so she says, this longing for violent entertainment is an integral part of the cultural movement that I term thanatopathia. Sorry, thanatopathia. Yeah, yeah, she's not not scared of it. Not not phobia. Thanatopathia, which is from Greek, right? Um, Thanos is death and Mm -hmm. pathia obviously is passion or desire. So we have this passion for death, right? But in line with the topic of this edited volume in which she's writing, she talks specifically about spectacular death. She says, even though apocalyptic thinking goes back to the dawn of humanity, beginning with the Mesopotamia myth of the flood, contemporary movies, as well as computer games and fiction, mark a unique way of envisioning the end of humankind. And she calls this era, the era of, I guess this isn't her term, but the era of spectacular death, Mm -hmm. in which, quote, death that has for all practical intents and purposes been transformed into a spectacle. Right. Something which something to be observed and, you know, taken in and you watch, you know, sometimes for entertainment. Right. 
the death of things, whether that's human beings or whatever. Um, so interesting thought there. I think it's actually the author of the edited volume that came up with this idea of it spectacular is. death. Yeah, Jacobson. Flushes it out. Yeah. Yeah, Jacobson. So, so go okay. ahead. I was going to say there's a couple of things. First, like that first paragraph where where she is kind of setting the stage for the literature on this topic that that we love um, watching, viewing, reading about the apocalypse because of our general dissatisfaction um, with society as it is today, which is something that I, I definitely I fall in line with. Like I think that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Like this is a way for us to deal with either A, our dissatisfaction or B, this already feeling of impending doom because of environmental concerns or pandemics or whatever. And the only way that we know how to cope with it, and we've talked about this before, you and I, is to um, consume more. In this case, consume mm-hmm. what we, just keep consuming the way we do, but now we're consuming content on the topic at hand, uh, at our, at our basically our demise. Mm-hmm. I actually, even though she contests that, I and she makes actually some good arguments regarding spectacular death. I still think there's actually a lot of that in there, and that's that's where we're going to explore like this kind of common mm-hmm. theme across time and space in in future episodes. So I did want to mention that. The other thing Although that I, I kind of want to say just briefly, like it's not as she mentions in that paragraph, all the other theories and then says, those are all blatantly wrong because of it's more, her theory is more of like a yes. And right. Like I don't yeah. think she's actually yeah, discounting no, 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 those. No, she's kind of just that. adding hers. Right. And while we're on this topic, the addition of, if we want to, if we want to say the yes and the spectacular death, I, I also don't know that that's unique to our time and place either. I mean, I do think that spectacular death has kind of been a thing across human time and space as well. Like, I mean, people being obsessed with like the grotesque. I mean, I mean, people used to come out like during the French revolution to watch the beheadings. Mm-hmm. Like, so I don't, or I mean the Colosseum, right. In Rome, the Coliseum I mean, there's in so Rome, many examples. I, I, yeah. Numerous examples, the crucifixions, et cetera. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. there's, I mean, we can, we can think of, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of examples. So I don't know that the fascination with the spectacular death because of social context, which is what we're talking about here in some sort of hegemonic discourse. I don't think that's unique to the modern, modern era the, and I'm not even saying that she's saying it's unique to the right, modern right, era. Right, right, right. I think not, that I'm there might be a difference, her. which is maybe her point, and maybe the yeah. point of the spectacular death is that yeah. now it's a commodity, right? Okay. Like now we're actually buying the spectacle instead of like, you know, you would buy a ticket to go see it or you would just go to the square and see the beheading. Now we're paying to paying for the spectacle itself, right? We're paying for the movie ticket or whatever it is, right? The book or something like that. So I think that's kind of the point is that the spectacle itself is now the commodity instead of the death being the commodity, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's evolved under, in this case, capitalist discourse. Sure. Right. She says that, uh, she suggests that the shift occurred in the late 80s and early 90s, 1980s and 1990s in which the media began to portray the quote-unquote monster, and she uses the examples of like wizards, vampires, zombies, cannibals, serial killers, basically that they became the main protagonist with which, you know, the audience was supposed to identify and see the world through their eyes, right? She says, quote, the image of the superhero probably symbolizes the best, best the disappointment with humans. Contrary to the humanists, the Enlightenment, and even to Nietzsche and Overman, who was supposed to improve himself by overcoming perceived moral and intellectual weaknesses, contemporary popular culture protagonists are considered extraordinary only when they abandon human nature and or modify it. Right? So she's saying the heroes now are the ones who aren't the most human, 
right? They're the ones who abandon their humanity in some way or another, right? So they are the superheroes, right? The Marvel superheroes who are no longer human and like so forth, which I think is interesting. Any thoughts on that one? I despise superhero movies, as everybody knows. It's Legion at this point. I pick them apart for like what I think their goal is, is to, I mean, their number one goal is to entertain and make money. That's mm-hmm. that's why they exist. But I, I would argue their low-key socialization is to remove agency from humanity and give it to these non-human god-like creatures. Um, whether we're talking about Superman, this like, again, almost like a god, like a demigod coming down from above, i.e. like like some sort of spiritual entity to save us all. Like don't don't seek to have any agency on your own. Wait for this otherworldly entity to save it for you. Feels kind of religious to me. Um, in the case of like the Batmans and the Iron Mans of the world, they don't have any superpowers. Their superpower is literally being rich. So I think mm-hmm. that's like praying, pra- praising capitalism right there in that regard. I mean, even Iron Man himself, right, works as a defense contractor. So we see a lot mm-hmm. of socialization there. That doesn't necessarily address what her concern is with these other human entities, but I think that's... No, in fact, I think that that leads straight into her theory, right? Because the next section of the chapter is titled Commodified Anti-Humanism. Well... She says... Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I'll actually interject later. Yeah, go ahead. She says, this trend is not, quote, a psychological reaction of millions of fans that could be explained away by masochism, sadism, or suppressed desires... It is a cultural trend that sanctioned the entertainment industry to offer anti-humanism, more precisely the denigration of human dignity by violent death, as a popular commodity, right? This anti-humanism, this denigration of the human species is now a commodity, right, that we will pay for, which is like sick and twisted in some weird way. But that's her argument here is that this is what has shifted in the early 80s and 90s is we want to see humanity denigrated in our popular culture, right? And that that is a shift according to the author. So in the case of super superheroes, 100% agree. And in the case of other different types of apocalypses, I, I don't know that I agree. Like apocalypses in terms of like pop culture, like so the zombie mm-hmm. phenomenon would be one of the biggest. Mm-hmm. And even though I think some people maybe identify with the zombie or that the zombies actually are a metaphor for something else, like, you know, brainlessness and mass consumption. And and, and we've heard all of those arguments before. I still think that the general audience um, most associates themselves with the survivor, the mm-hmm. hero, that humanity will get through this zombie apocalypse, or I think aliens work as well, this alien invasion and persevere. So I actually right. see those as like very pro-human. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I I don't know if this was her intent with this sentence. I don't think it was, but to like lump the monster in, like the vampire, the zombie as the protagonist, I, I don't know that that's always the case. Ooh, that's actually a good one. Vampires are oftentimes protagonists in those films. I don't that know that that's true, the yeah. zombies or the aliens as the protagonist. Yeah, I mean, what's the Brad Pitt movie, like the most famous vampire movie of all time? Yeah, an interview with a vampire. Yeah, exactly. I guess it's not famous any, as famous since Twilight yeah, came no, out. Yeah, no, it's like whatever. stuff, dude. You, yeah. You're missing out but on It's a writer on the era she's talking Twilight about, Twilight right? dude. Come on. Yeah, yeah, I know. I haven't seen it, so it's not in my brain. Yeah. I'm going to have to, I'm assuming once my daughter's old enough, but I'm holding out until then. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's an experience. The interview with the vampire, right. was a right around the time that she's saying she's talking about. And I mean, to your point, right. Obviously human centered movies still exist or TV shows, right? Like we talked about the walking dead as an example of, you know, the humans against the zombies. Most people are watching that to identify with the sheriff or identify. I don't think she's saying that they don't exist at all anymore. I think she's just saying that, There are many that are now anti-human, and that is a new thing, right? Okay. Um, Quote, this, and I love this quote. 
Different from the narratives inspired by either communist ideology, with call, which called for the annihilation of specific social groups, or from the Nazi ideology, which called for the extermination of specific ethnic groups, commodified anti-humanism targets the human species and questions the very significance of humanity's existence. She's saying, we're not here just talking about in this media, right, the elimination of one specific group of humanity, a social group, or a specific mm-hmm. race or a specific ethnic group, right, which like we talked in the you know Nazi ideology and so on, that this is specifically about the elimination of humanity overall and the fatu- infatuation with that mm-hmm. and as a commodity, right? We are marketed this narrative, this anti-humanist narrative, and we are willing to pay for it, which is very interesting. Yeah. The one point that I think needed to be drawn out a little bit, it's not an agreement or disagreement point, but when, and you're going to get to this in a second, but one of the main examples used in this piece is going to be like the wizards of the Harry Potter franchise. Mm -hmm. Um, My issue here is that even though they're wizards, they're non-humans and humans are pretty much denigrated throughout that book series and film series. The wizards are so human-like that... Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like I get like in general, they're not humans, but like they're very human-like qualities, I think kind of mm, make it a little bit problematic to say it's completely anti-anthropocentric, if that makes sense. Because because we're still rooting for these characters, even though they are the monsters, they're wizards, they're Mm -hmm. non-human. They basically act like humans. Like they had. The same is true for the superheroes, right? Except for like the Hulk or something, but like Iron Man, Captain America, Wonder Woman, Superman, like you said, we can go down the list. That's why I guess I I I guess, like you said, Iron Man is actually a human, but the rest of them are all superhuman in some way, right? But that's why I struggle with some of this argument a little bit, because if we really were anti-human, we'd be rooting flat out for, in this case, we'd even go beyond the zombies. We'd be rooting, I forget what the alien and alien is called, but we would want that complete elimination. We mm-hmm. would want, and I guess maybe we could argue in the predator, maybe someone is rooting for the predator like or, or something along those lines. But, but I don't think that happens very often. Although this article came out just before uh uh don't look up became popular so in that case we were rooting for the meteor i suppose um (laughs) uh, so but but i don't think now that you say that like that i think marks a like a line in the sand really of like you're right i think people watching that movie are just like i want the meteor to hit so bad i'm so done with everyone (laughs) in this like movie they're so dumb that like just i want them to die Right. Right. And of course, the irony is that the grossest people in the film actually escape, but then they end up dying anyway. So, you know. Weirdly, the best example used in the article, and God, I'm I'm getting ahead of us, but we're going to get to Planet of the Apes, where I I Mm -hmm. think that's that's probably one of the best examples where we see like a genuine rooting for a non-human entity, although we could argue that the apes, once they evolve, have very human-like qualities mm-hmm. but re- regardless i think that's the best example anyway keep going i, mean, I, I, I think I, that I, all that's the, probably just a device of storytelling that it's almost impossible for us to relate to someone that isn't a humanoid in some way right so when does when does a filmmaker or book writer get brave enough for us to do that where we are genuinely rooting yeah. for well i don't know i mean there was that joke with the dolphins and what was that movie a hitchhiker's guide to the to yeah, the yeah. Yeah, the dolphins just peace out, right? <laughs> Thanks for the fish, right? Like, um, or there's like other examples in animation, right? Like in yeah. Monsters Inc. or whatever. But like, okay. that's a cartoon, right? And it's not apocalyptic. They're not killing the humans. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. So that's my point. When are we genuinely going to root for that, that individual? Like, Wally. I guess that's it. Wally. She, I rooted for that robot over every fat human garbage on that <laughs> spaceship. But right. it's animated yet again. You know what I mean? So that maybe that's safer. Maybe that says something else. That's probably mm-hmm. right for another episode. But okay. I, right. we, we've gone off the rails a little bit. Let's get back okay. on track. Um, yeah. The next section is called Muggles, Nomad, and the Apocalypse as Entertainment. And she provides some of the examples that we were just talking about of media that she says, quote, uh, as debasing humans and representing them as either dangerous or useless creatures, which I love. She uses a uh, Wally in here, you know, in which humans are, she says, quote, ugly, overweight, ridiculous creatures who are totally dependent on the robots for their existence. They have no purpose, emotions, or relations, except for those generated by their constant vulgar consumption. That's I mean, Wally, like we always talk about, right? It's such a good example. It does answer my concern I just raised. Wally genuinely as a non-human is is the hero and mm-hmm. yeah so that one actually does check off that box for sure actually another one i just thought of is um i guess it's a little bit different dynamics but avatar right like it's not the end of humanity though but we definitely are rooting for the whatever their name is i can't remember right now the blue people you know what i mean yeah. like they're definitely humanoid but we definitely want them to kill all of the humans you know sure uh then she talks about two paradigms which we've already given away because we've been using the terms anyway um human-centered paradigms and anti-human paradigms so she says you know the human-centered paradigms envisions the apocalypse as a human drama and ultimate horror and she uses an example of a novel as like the first example of this which i had never heard of before i'm embarrassed to admit but i never had it's by mary shelley actually titled the last man it was published in 1826 Um, And once I Googled this, I realized that most people point to this as the first sort of work of dystopian fiction, which is kind of interesting Um, in in that the main character wanders across Europe, uh, basically, while a plague is wiping out humanity and eventually all of humanity dies except for uh, the titular last man. Um, And it's interesting that when that book was written, Shelley was basically shredded by all of the critics as if she was like morally bankrupt, right? Like how dare she write something like this? And the book had basically fell by the wayside and was often referred to as like her worst work until like the 1920s, I think, when it had a huge resurgence and was republished and became popular again in the United States. So I think just that timeline of that singular work, I think, tells us a lot about our obsession with the apocalypse and so forth. Well, and that timeline is not too far off from, and you're going to have to, or maybe I can Google it or whatever. The War of the Worlds radio broadcast is not too mm-hmm. long after that, I'd have to imagine, by Orson mm-hmm. Welles. Um, right. Uh, which, of course, is, is is I mean, that's a cultural phenomenon, right? Like, I mean, so much so, not just at that time period, but of course, later on, we've we've reimagined it in films. What's the Tom, the Tom Cruise movie? And I'm sure there's been other mm-hmm. reimaginings. When was that? When's the original War of the Worlds? I want to say the 30s, but I, that's just pulling things out of thin air. I don't know. You can Google it while I keep going. Yeah, you keep going. I'm going to Google. Um, yeah. So the author indicates, and this is where we get to the main crux of the chapter and the title, right? Anthropocentrism. She says, quote, anthropocentrism is the most prominent feature of this paradigm and its heroes are people. So the human centered paradigm is anthropocentric which if you don't know, I have the definition here so that we could uh, not just pull this out of thin air. This is from the Oxford English Dictionary. Anthropocentrism is, quote, primary or exclusive focus on humanity. The view or belief that humanity is the central, most important element of existence 
especially as opposed to God or the natural world. So the human-centered paradigm in apocalyptic media focuses on the human plight, right? And it's often the elimination of humanity facing a potential elimination, right? When they face an apocalypse is viewed as a drama or a tragedy over which humanity must overcome, right? They must solve and survive this impending disaster. So that's the human-centered paradigm. Okay, give us the date. We are wrong, so wrong. Um, We need to do maybe more research on this. So the broadcast, you're right, which is what we were both thinking of, took place in 1938 by Orson Mm -hmm. Welles. That's the radio broadcast, but it is based on um, writing an actual novel that goes all the way back to around the same time period of this, um, the Shelley work, 1897. Hmm. And when? 1897? Yeah. So the first actual edition, Hmm. yeah. Oh, sorry. It's written in 1897 and actually published in 1898 in the UK by H.G. Wells. Okay. So that's like 60 years after Shelley or something. So that's quite a ways, but still same century, et cetera. Yeah. So, but I didn't realize, yeah, I didn't no, realize I didn't know that, that either. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, whatever. We're getting off topic. Interesting. That's super okay, interesting. So she gives some examples of the human-centered paradigm, Maze Runner, The Death Curve, which I have not seen, Mission Impossible Fallout, which I have seen, Pacific Rim Uprising, which I have seen, uh, and then we came up with like The Walking Dead, Zombieland, et cetera, right? These are stories where um, the yeah. humans are fighting against this impending apocalypse in that case. Alien. From the zombies, yeah, aliens a good example. The one hundred. Hmm. I don't even know what's the one hundred. Uh, where those kids get dropped off on Earth after the or the world already ended. Oh, okay, um, I never watched it. You told me about it though. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> That's why I never watched it. I guess. Yeah. Then she said the second paradigm is the anti-human paradigm. She says this is the one that was born in the eighties and nineties. She says, since the late 80s and early 1990s, when the critique of humanism and the rejection of anthropocentrism descended into popular culture and anti-humanism emerged as a popular commodity, the human-centered paradigm has undergone profound changes that are omnipresent in the apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic movies of 2018 through 2019. So she's looking at recent media here, right? She's, you know, in the anti-human medium, the humans are no longer the main protagonists. They are often portrayed as like weak or dumb and they must be saved by some superhumans that are, you know, superhuman in some capacity. So she gives the examples of the Incredibles, which are saved by Elastigirl, Avengers Infinity War, which are obviously saved by the superheroes and Harry Potter, where they're saved by the wizards, which we already talked about. Another example I came up with was The Happening by M. Night Shyamalan which I guarantee most people have not seen, but in long story short, the earth through plants actually releases airborne toxins that starts killing off humanity and humans are a virus that are polluting the earth that it must save itself from, which is kind of interesting. But they aren't saved by any superhumans in this case. Um, essentially, once enough humans die, then the earth stops releasing these toxins. I've Anyways. seen the happening. I haven't seen any of this other non- th- nonsense. My antipathy for superhero tropes. I have not watched a superhero movie since the very first Iron Man. Um, there's another. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're all absolutely embarrassing to watch. Uh, sorry for like everybody because I know you all love them, but whatever. I'm standing on. I'm dying on this hill. 
um, worst <laughs> genre of film ever. I mean, like I, I'd be more entertaining reading about like Zeus and, and you know, whatever Demeter and stuff. Cause it's the same thing. We like look back on like things like Greek or Egyptian mythology, like how does this story? Well, I mean, it's like literally the same stories. It is, you know yeah. I mean? they're all, yeah it's a, I mean, shoot, they even jacked like Norse mythology for the names of these idiots. Um, yeah, okay. exactly. Moving on though. Here's one that I think is overlooked and very rarely known, but I think had a lot of uh, opportunity and it's actually was going to be one of my favorites until it was actually made into a show and it was terrible. It's called Zoo, where the animals, just like the happening, when you mention the happening, the animals are going to take the earth back from us because we're absolutely terrible. So the apocalypse is brought on by animals gaining some sort of pan consciousness and absolutely using all of their awesome skills to end us. And I thought I, it was done so poorly in the TV show that, that is it I- a book? I I think it was a book first and then it was a TV show, but essentially, yes, like out of nowhere, dogs, lions, cats, chickens, whatever, bugs, they're all communicating and they are going to um, uh, remove us from the earth. That was a cool concept. Obviously, for me personally, I'm rooting for the animals because they are superior in so many different ways. Um, But it was done so poorly. Um, And I don't even think, I don't think the book was that great. I only skimmed parts of it because I was curious after the show came out and the show was done terribly. Anyway... If anyone happens to be listening to this that is an amazing like person in Hollywood or uh, uh, making TV shows, let's bring that back and do it well because I really want to see the animals end us. So please, yeah, that's <laughs> absolutely. Next, she talks about the title, the section of the chapter is titled Godzilla, the Apes and the Transformations of the Genre. And she uses Godzilla to illustrate exactly how this went down, you know, saying in the first Godzilla movie, Godzilla was a result of nuclear radiation, destroys part of the city and kills many people, right? And the humans dying are victims of the monster who they must destroy, right? That's the central theme of the film. Then she says in the 2019 remake, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, Godzilla is framed as the Earth's defense system, right? That the Earth releases, it's not just Godzilla in that one, many of these monsters to defend itself against humanity, which is a virus to the earth and they're killing and destroying the earth, right? So just a shift within the same film franchise of how this all goes down, right? And where Godzilla is like the protagonist that's essentially saving the world in the 2019 version. Of course, the humans end up, you know, surviving and so forth, but the whole dynamic is completely uh, different. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe I'll, it made me want to kind of like watch it a little bit because I've always mm-hmm. thought that was just another cliche, you know, big budget Hollywood film with explosions and stuff. But if I end up rooting for the monsters, then yeah, I mean, yeah, any, anything that I can root of for like the demise of humanity, I guess would be great. Yeah. So maybe I'll watch it. I haven't seen the 2019 one. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. The last I one I watched was the one with Matthew Broderick, which I have to assume is like the 90s or early 2000s or something. I don't know. Maybe there we should watch it and do an episode like on it. There was one with like a cool that. soundtrack with like rage on it. That's the last one I watched. Yeah, that same, same, yeah. same one. I don't know when that was, but yeah. Okay. Then she basically finishes this out. She says, quote, the apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic movies and fiction of the past decade persistently describe the extension of the human race, often in favor of another intelligent species as the natural course of events. I interpret this evolution of the genre as an indictment of the changing attitudes to people expressed as a radical rejection of both humanism and anthropocentrism. The anti-human paradigm of the apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic genres, which emerged in the late 1990s and early 2000s, is different from the human-centered one in two important respects. 
It is idealized, its idealized protagonists are non-humans, and the annihilation of humanity is not viewed as the ultimate tragedy, but rather as a morally justifiable and historically inevitable natural course of events. So anti-humanist apocalyptic media. She argues that the anthropocentrism that we have found in previous apocalyptic media has now been transformed into this anti-humanist paradigm in which humanity's dying is no longer framed as a tragedy, but as justifiable and natural course of events. Any closing thoughts? So my closing thoughts are, I disagree with that full-blown conclusion. I think there's actually still quite a bit of both. Um, oh yeah, for I, sure. And I don't think the transition is complete, nor do I think there's ever going to be a complete transition. I think we're too arrogant a species for there to ever be that, that, that. Yeah, that and I don't think she's arguing that like it's yeah. been a 100% flip of the switch. They clearly right. exist alongside each other, but the anti-humanist ones are new, I would argue. Yeah, and that would be a task new. for us so. to... If we wanted to do research, that would be a task for us to try to find a historical example of an anti-humanist narrative. I yeah, can't think of one, but I, I, I don't can't know. think of one that's like deep into history in any of these mythos mythologies as well. But again, then of course this comes out before the most recent version of this or the most recent popular version of this. Don't look up where we mm -hmm. were really legit rooting for the meteor. So maybe there's a point to be made there. Um, if we were finally, more ambitious, we would write an article that was, you know, the anti-humanist theme of don't look up but yeah we're not, not that ambitious um no. it's not something i want to write about uh maybe we'll do a pod on it i don't know but um and then finally here's the other conclusion that that we want to make sure um regarding uh this article is that all of this is tied to um spectacular death our uh mm -hmm. the commodification and our obsession with of course um death in general um and in this case the apocalyptic death of humanity so That's so it, she I'm said Mick. i'm jared if you like this episode, please, please, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon supporters. Later.